Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. It should come as no surprise that young people given life without the possibility of parole sentences have been disproportionately black and brown. Our guest, James Wendell, the author of Sentencing Youth to Life in Prison, Justice Denied, is an adjunct faculty member in criminal justice, a court clinical psychologist, and has more than 25 years conducting group therapy with delinquent adolescents. The Supreme Court decisions in Miller v. Alabama and Montgomery v. Louisiana clearly demonstrated that the court's views of juveniles evolved over decades to reflect advances in our understanding of the unique characteristics of youth and their involvement in juvenile crimes. This book, co-written with Kathy Milken Boyd, analyzes the impact of the Supreme Court rulings deeming juvenile life without parole sentences to be cruel and unusual punishment. These court decisions brought about controversy and resistance in the criminal justice field, while at the same time providing hope for those 2,300 people who never thought they had a chance to experience life as an adult outside prison. By looking in depth at the lives of some of the individuals serving life terms and understanding both the prosecutors who oppose review and resentencing of juvenile lifers and those who are sincerely following the Supreme Court's guidelines. James, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Well, I am happy to be again talking with my guest today, James Wendell. You know how they say there's no coincidences. Well, this is our take, too. And I was thinking about it, and I was going like, we, I want to talk about his book, Sentencing Youth to Life in Prison, Justice Denied. But, James, you know, it reminded me as I was thinking about that, here we can do a take, two. You know, we can have a stumble, whatever happens. And we can do a take two. And we're going to talk about later on about young people who sometimes didn't get that opportunity to take that stumble and do a take two to to change their life. I've well, been looking at a lot of. I, I've been looking at a lot of things that you've done. Who is James Wendell? And 
how did you come to be at the point you're at now? Well, um, I, I come from a background working in the juvenile court. I was a juvenile court probation officer, then a psychologist, and I, I ended up my years in the juvenile court doing treatment with um, juveniles on probation. So I have a long history of working with juveniles and actually really enjoying my work with with juveniles, particularly those who are on probation. But I also began teaching criminal justice classes at Wayne State University and Oakland University. And that led me to writing more about criminal justice. And so after writing several books in the criminal justice field, seemed that it was very important to write about sentencing of juveniles. And that led to to this book, Sentencing Youth to Life in Prison, Justice Denied. We, me and my co-author, wanted to talk about how these kinds of sentencings came about, the life sentences for juveniles. And so we ended up writing a history and then talking about uh, why we as a society end up giving such harsh harsh sentences to juveniles. You know, one of the other books you wrote that, that also made me think about this, I was involved with a program and we intentionally defined youth as being from 16 to 25 because, you know, we tend to start to say like, oh, 18, you can, 16, you can drive, you're almost adult, 18, you can vote, you can go do this, that, and you're an adult. But really there's a level of growth, that emotional intelligence that young people are still going through you know, past their teens, some even, right? but often people don't think about that. And particularly when you look at black and brown bodies, where people look at the size of, of you know, a young, you know, six-footer at, at 13, particularly if they're black or brown, and they see an adult and a man. They don't see that this is still a young person who's, growing and developing. Do you see that this is a big part of the issue in sentencing? Yes, it is. Um, I think it's a very big part because I think this is part of what happens in uh, juvenile and adult courts across the country is that uh, prosecutors and judges look at young black youth and see them as being older and they look at white youth, see them as being younger. And so then there there's a discrepancy in the way they are treated and the way they are sentenced. And I, and I think we found this in writing this book and doing the research that there was a tremendous discrepancy in terms of who got life without the possibility of parole sentences. It was far and away black youth 
who were given the harshest sentences. You know, and I'm and you know, and I'm not going to say. I know some people would say, you know, they do adult things and they should accept their, uh, the consequences. But in your work, do you find that there's some point, you know, sometimes, and it's not like to say boys will be boys, but young people will be young people and they don't fully grasp the gravity of what they're doing. We all know that when, hey, I know when I was in my teens, I thought I was invincible. I mean, you know, you could do anything. And in your work, especially because, you know, you've worked with young people. Did you have to then be able to go back to court, to police, and help them understand, you know, when are you looking at someone who has done wrong and doesn't get it and and needs some type of whatever, but where their mind was at at the time that they were doing it, that maybe they did an adult crime, but they were acting as a young person? Yes. Uh, that that was really something that we've all be, begun, or many of us have begun to realize over the past uh, couple of decades as research on the brains and the developments of people have become uh, uh, more, have come more into focus. We understand that Young people don't develop in their their executive functioning until they're later in their teens and their twenties, sometimes in their late twenties. So they may have the body of an older person, or they may be tall or strong, but that doesn't mean that they think like an adult. And I I believe that that becomes much more important. Certainly it was important to the Supreme Court in making decisions in cases related to juveniles. So the decisions that they've made over the past 20 to 30 years have been based to a large extent on the research that shows that juveniles are much less culpable, Uh, they're more impulsive and impetuous, they don't make the same kinds of decisions that adults do. And I I think that what we've, we've found is that when courts look at the crime, rather than looking at the person, that they judge and make decisions based on the crime rather than on the developmental level of the juvenile. How did, okay, a lot of of your work in this book, um, you talk about what happened with Miller versus Alabama and Montgomery versus Louisiana prior to those decisions. How were juvenile offenders looked at, treated, and sentenced? Well, uh, there was a, a, a growing tendency in the Supreme Court beginning in the 1980s to 
begin to realize that juveniles were different and they needed to be treated differently by courts, which is why uh, there were decisions that uh, you couldn't execute people under 16, and then they moved that up to 18. Uh, then we had decisions after 2000 about uh, not being able to sentence juveniles to life without the possibility of parole for a non-homicide case. And then finally, that brought us to Miller versus Alabama in 2012 when the court ruled that you you couldn't have a sentencing scheme that required juvenile ho- homicide offenders to be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So um, the, the court has realized this, and in some ways they've been ahead of uh, other parts of the justice system in making these kinds of decisions that youth are have to be treated differently from adults. You know, initially, back before the juvenile court was invented in 1899, young people were seen as adults, and they were sentenced as adults, and they went to adult prisons. And the whole idea of the juvenile court was that juveniles are different from adults. And that's what the court decisions have been reminding us for a few decades is that juveniles are different from adults. But unfortunately, we went through an era of get tough on crime and get tough on juvenile crime. And we passed laws in every state that allowed juveniles to be waived to adult courts at younger ages. So we've sort of undermined the uh, uh, authority and the jurisdiction of juvenile courts, allowing kids to be sentenced as adults. You know, when we were talking before, you told me some numbers about how many youth had been sentenced to life in prison. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. When the the Supreme Court ruled in June 2012 in Miller versus Alabama, it was said that there were 2,300 people in prisons who were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole as juveniles. Now, that number is a bit in dispute. Uh, There may be a few more or a few less, but there were roughly well over 2,000. And um, that's a lot of people who were were serving life without the possibility of parole terms. And these weren't all like murderers, right? Correct. They weren't. Um, Sometimes... They were just there when a murder took place, or sometimes they had violated parole or or probation and were given a life without parole sentence. So it's not like every person who went to prison 
for life without the possibility of parole as a juvenile had committed a murder. Many had, but some haven't. Because I know that, you know, I mean, here in Michigan, we all know that um, the infamous, you know, what was the white boy, Rick, Rick Wershey, who, I mean, he was sentenced as an adult, and they talked about how long he spent in jail. You know, when he first got involved with, in part, helping the police, he was 14. Then he ended up spending 27 years for a drug offense committed when he was 17. Yeah, yeah. he's an example. Right, he's an uh-huh. example of a person who did not commit a murder, who who was given a, a, a long sentence. Um, so there are others like him who, who may have been involved in drug offenses who, who got life sentences as well. So when the Supreme Court decisions came, you know, they didn't just like immediately open the gates and everybody ran out. What was the, how many people were released? And what was the process to have your case looked at or to get out if you've been, I mean, the thing is so amazing when you see people who, I mean, they had a guy um, on the news the other day who had spent half of his life in prison. So what was the process? I mean, you know, to, to get out after these decisions are passed. Well, that differed, that differed in, in states and in, in uh, counties, actually. Some states readily saw the Miller versus Alabama decision as being something that mandated that they ought to take a look at all of the juveniles from their state who, who were sentenced to life without parole and to review whether they should be given a lesser sentence. So some states did that readily, and some states went about passing laws even that uh, said that it would be unconstitutional to, to sentence a juvenile to life without the possibility of parole. Um, but then it came down to counties. So every county had to look at whether they had sentenced juveniles to life without the possibility of parole, and they had to make a decision. What were they going to do about those people? Were they going to review their status and possibly recommend that they be resentenced to a lesser amount of time or be released? So in some states, this was an easy process, and some went about releasing many after doing reviews. But the, the process often was that either a committee or commission was set up or that some department would begin evaluating those people who were serving life without the possibility of parole sentences and they would be assessed, say, by a psychologist, and then a report would come back to the court, and the court would then review the case, and a a judge would make a decision as to whether they would be given a lesser sentence or be released. So as I said, this was relatively 
uh, easily done in, in some counties and some states, but in others, there was resistance by prosecuting attorneys, mainly, uh-huh. who, who did not want juveniles to be resentenced. And because there, there were a, a significant number of prosecuting attorneys who refused to review cases, the whole question of whether there was retroactivity went back to the Supreme Court. And in 2016, the Supreme Court stated in Montgomery versus Louisiana that the Miller versus Alabama ruling did apply retroactively and every state must comply. So most states and most uh, prosecuting attorneys, given that 2016 decision, did comply, some slower than others, um, but most did go about uh, doing evaluations and beginning to look at who should be released and who should be continued with a life without parole sentence. Now, you know, you've worked with the court, um, you've been an educator, you've looked at this, you know, but if a young person, I mean, and the thing that, first of all, the thing that's amazing is like, you're talking 2016, that wasn't 10 years ago. I mean, but if someone, what was the impact on these young people who have been sentenced to life? Then they were had to go through all of this to get out. What was the impact on them? You know, we talk about their emotional intelligence. Well, in some ways, at the time when other kids would have been out there growing and developing and trying to do things, they're sitting in the prison. What was the impact on these? And do you have any, have you heard anything anecdotally about what was their reintegration into their communities, into their families' life? Well, I think the impact was that uh, usually they were told that uh, the Miller versus Alabama decision had come about and that there was a possibility that they would be resentenced or at least evaluated for resentencing. So I think a lot after probably deciding that they would never get out of prison, began to have some hope that there was a possibility that they could be released. But it was slow in coming for many of them. Um, And I I think when you, you talk about the impact in prison, you also have to look at what it's like for a juvenile to go to an adult prison, in many cases, they are more vulnerable than older people when they go to prison. So in a lot of cases, we know they they were abused and mistreated by um, other prisoners and even by staff because they were young and vulnerable. But then as they began to to be released we we could see that some of them 
after spending 10, 20, 30, 40 years in prison, many of them were able to make a fairly good adjustment and some made very remarkable adjustments. And we talked about some of the people in our book who were released and and uh, have been outstanding citizens. Some have uh, started uh, programs to help others who were sentenced as juveniles to help them either get out or when they are out to make a good adjustment. These reentry types of programs, I think, are very important to a lot of the former juvenile lifers who have been released. Um, and I, I think the amazing thing for us was that the people that we talked to who had been given life without parole sentences and were released were making a good adjustment on the outside and 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 they were outstanding people of course that would be part of the reason why they were recommended for a a lesser sentence Um, but despite spending a good share of their life in some cases in prison they were doing well once they got out. Hmm. Well, James, we're going to take our first break, and then we're going to, you know, this is just such a, a, an amazing topic. But um, we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Back here with James Wendell. He's an author, an editor, teacher, working in the criminal justice system. You know, James, one of the things that, I mean, what you told me before, I mean, first of all, one thing that didn't um, shock me was the disparity in races. I know that you were saying that, um, like, in, in, for instance, in Pennsylvania, that 80% of the juvenile were black or brown. But what really, like, you know, okay, and I know that Michigan is not perfect, but when you said that, you know, when you, that Michigan had the second highest total of all 50 states in terms of people who were given, who were juveniles when given life without parole sentences, I mean, that just like, I was like, what? (laughs) You know, why? Why was Michigan so hard on you? Uh, that's that's a very good question, and I wish I had a, a, a very straightforward answer for that. 
Um, I think one of the reasons was that we had a legislature who in the 80s and 90s passed laws that made it easier to waive juveniles to adult courts. And once you are in an adult court and are convicted, then the possibility arises for a, a life without parole sentence. So we're certainly we're not the only state, but mm-hmm. uh, the fact that uh, we had the second highest number of juveniles serving life without parole sentences certainly says something. And I, I would uh, lay the fault that the, the legislature in a, a get tough on crime era where they virtually took away any lower limits on the age for which juveniles could be waived to adult courts. And this, in my way of thinking, really undermines the juvenile court. Why do we have a juvenile court? The juvenile court is there to deal with juveniles and to treat them as individuals and they has a rehabilitative purpose. Sending people to life in prison says that there's no possibility of rehabilitation. Uh, you are somehow in you. You, you are so uh, corrupted that you'll never get better. You know, and I, and you wonder like I've done a lot of work with kids. And uh, and with young people, but there are some young people where you know it's sort of like, well, and maybe they get a job, you know, that that their outcome, what they see as their future is like. Okay, they might get a job. I mean, many of them don't think like that pathway. I'm going to go to school and go to college. But there's a a cadre of young people who think like, will I make it to 21? I'll probably get killed, or that at some point in time, somebody in their family has done time, they may do time, and how to, and you know, and it seems to me that if you're thinking this, and this is looming over it, and you're seeing these examples in your community of people doing it, not only would it be depressing, but it can also make you take risks that as a young person, you might, but it, because you think that there's no positive outcome. Well, I think that's true. Certainly a hallmark of immature youth is to take risks. And uh, the more risks you take, the more likely you are to get into some serious difficulty. But if you think you you don't have... Uh, a future uh, that's going to turn out well for you, then why not take risks and why not do whatever you feel like doing or whatever you're drawn to do? So, yeah, I I do think that that is a possibility. And and people do grow up in communities in which they feel like there is no future for them and that may not only make them depressed, but also, as you say, more likely to engage in risky behavior. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm -hmm. that 
you end up getting in trouble, and you always knew you were going to be in trouble and go to prison. Mm-hmm. So there you are in prison. Yeah, but, it's like, you know, it's going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that they don't change. And mm-hmm. I, I think part of the process is just living longer and, and uh, letting the brain develop. And I think because we can't know who is going to make major changes in their personality and in their thinking, it's premature to say that someone at 15, 16, or 17 should get a life without parole sentence because we can't play God. We can't say we know how they're going to be 10 or 20 years from now. Uh-huh. And I I think what we saw in, in talking to people who were juvenile lifers is that they made changes after they had been in prison a while and after they became 25 or 30. Uh, they were more mature. They were able to think differently. And this was was seen in the kinds of behavior they displayed in prison where they didn't get into trouble after a certain age. Uh, they took advantage of programs that were in prison, such as educational programs or uh, psychological treatment. And uh, even though they may have thought that they would never get out of prison, they were going to live a different kind of life and a life where they would help others. We had people that we knew who uh, made it a, a special part of their life where they would look out for other prisoners, where they would, would help the elderly inmates, uh, or they would take on jobs where they were teaching others or, or just helping them get along. Um, so people can surprise you by making really important changes in their life. Now, you've written several books, but this one you wrote with Kathy Milliken Boyd. How did that partnership come about? And did you, were you both coming from the same place, or did each of you bring a different perspective to this issue? Well, I think in a lot of ways we came from uh, a same perspective. Uh, we knew each other. 20 or 30 years ago in the uh, in the juvenile system we didn't work at the same place but we knew each other we had heard about each other um, Kathy often interviewed young people who were going to be waived or there was a possibility of waiver to adult courts and she would frequently go into court and have to testify and make recommendations for people. And we talk about that in the book. Um, for instance, she uh, assessed and uh, testified in the Nathaniel Abraham case. Uh, but that's what she did, and she did probably hundreds of those. I came out of the juvenile court system where I was working in treatment with juveniles but we both had spent a lot of time 
with young people in the court system. So when we got reacquainted uh, about three years ago and we started talking about uh, young people, the idea of life sentences came up. And she had testified in the case of a young man many years ago and she remembered this person and kept in touch with him. And um, that was something that was very important to her because she followed this one case. His name was Kevin Boyd, and he was given a life without parole sentence. And so she wanted to write about him, and she said she had always thought about writing about him and when we started talking, we both saw that we had an interest in examining the whole question of how juvenile life sentences came about and uh, the Supreme Court decisions and, 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 of course, what happened to people in prison and once they got out. So we decided we had enough in common and enough interest in this that we wanted to write a book about it. And so we were lucky enough to interest a publisher in it, and uh, we went about doing the interviews and research that uh, came to fruition in the book. Yeah. You know, because you often, I mean, you know, you're pitching this to uh, publishers, was it a difficult push? Was there a lot of interest in this in this book? Um, actually, it was the first publisher that we actually uh, talked to. Um, the the uh, publisher Taylor and Francis had uh, an imprint, Rutledge, and I had published a couple of other books with this company and. I thought that they would be an ideal fit. And I, I went to them and sent them a book proposal, and they were interested immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, we began talking about it. And one of the questions that one of the editors there asked was, uh, why do you want to do a book about this? And is there a reason or is there a book in this because, Miller versus Alabama has already been decided. So why do we need to talk about that if it's already been decided? And so we began to explain that uh, this isn't the end of the road. And as it turned out, uh, while we were writing the book, after they finally accepted our arguments, while we were writing the book in April of 2021, the Supreme Court released another decision in uh, Jones versus Mississippi. And that decision said that uh, judges don't need to establish that uh, the juvenile offendant is irredeemable before sentencing them to life without parole. So when we thought that everything was settled with Miller versus Alabama, it turns out that Jones versus Mississippi sort of allowed prosecutors 
and judges a way around uh, the banning of, of juvenile life without parole. So we still have that, which is why the book is important to bring to the attention of people that juveniles are still being given these long, long sentences. Yeah. Do you have any concerns when you look at the makeup, you know, from from back then to now, how the makeup of the Supreme Court has changed? Do you have concerns about this, about what or my, are that young people are still at risk, you know? I mean, you just talked about the one case, but as you're looking at it now, if if it came before the Supreme Court that we have now that leans heavily conservative, mm-hmm. what do you think happens? Are you concerned about that? Uh, yes, I am. And the pers- the judge who wrote the Jones versus Mississippi decision was Brett Kavanaugh, one uh-huh. of the the newer conservative judges. So you have this conservative um, majority on the court and conservatives by and large believe that punishment is the right way to treat people, even juveniles. Um, And that is very concerning because we hoped we had gotten away from that when we established the juvenile court in 1899, that we weren't looking at just punishing juveniles, we were looking at rehabilitating them. So when you have a conservative majority on the court, it uh, it frightens you that they may just be looking at how are we going to punish these kids and are we going to allow systems and schemes that will bring about the harsh punishments. And, you know, and we do, I mean, it always tickles me when you hear people, well, not tickles me, but I find it amusing when, like, particularly when we have President Obama, they said, oh, we're post-racial. But we know that today there's a level of privilege. You know, if you're black and brown, can you afford uh, the attorney? Can you afford someone to put forth this defense about it? You know, I mean, and you see that. I mean, even though they say, oh, it is public defenders who are uh, uh, who are available to do it. Okay, well, a public defender who's probably overworked um, can't do this and bring all of this. And then if you also have someone on the court who sees you not as a youth, but it's just an offender. I mean, it, it's just like such a slippery slope that you could still see, you know, one decision, one thing that you see someone, you know, boom, they're going back in, in jail. Even how police deal with youth offenders. And, you know, we're talking about the courts, but we have seen again and again and again that our police department, police departments nationwide aren't educated to think about the offender, particularly if they're a young offender. I mean, I hear, I mean, you still hear black parents saying, well, we know we had to talk and we tell them and they have to talk with their kids 
at younger and younger ages about just don't say anything, don't do anything, don't do that. And you'll see cases where the person was right, you know, they were doing the right thing, nothing, and they're still dead. How do you think that, you know, because you're talking a lot about the courts, but how will that trickle down into law enforcement? Well, we would hope that law enforcement would have an understanding about what juveniles are and uh, the the immaturity of their thinking and their brain development. But on the other hand, you, you still have the whole idea that black and brown people are perceived differently um, by law enforcement, by prosecutors, by judges. So, um, I mean, we, we have so many examples seems weekly that the police are are doing something somewhere that uh, shows that there is such bias and such discrimination that has to do with the color of their their skin. Uh, We really need to change Uh, our justice system in terms of how it perceives people and how it treats people fairly. I mean, Uh go ahead. Well, we, we know, and and you alluded to this before that uh, uh, a large percentage of the juveniles who got life without the possibility of parole sentences were black, and this was true in Michigan, in Louisiana, in Pennsylvania. Didn't matter where the state was; it was mostly true that seventy-five to eighty-five percent, in in one case, North Carolina, eighty-nine percent of youth huh. who got without the possibility of parole were black. So race still matters and it still plays a part and um, parents certainly do have to be concerned about that in raising children but courts and uh, the criminal justice system needs to be concerned about that because the systemic racism shows up over and over again you know I'm I'm going to ask this question because, I mean, it's real. Um, How important is it that you've got a background, you're an author, you've been a parenting specialist, you've been a criminal justice instructor, you're also a white male who's, you know, they aren't going to say that you're a a hippie, you know. I mean, I don't know. But anyhow, but here, you're, you're pretty much, you look like the face. If someone just saw you, they'd say, oh, you look like the face of the establishment. But you're bringing up these points. How important is it that you have this, that you have this platform, you have this voice, and you amplify this issue? And what do you feel, do you feel that you're heard more than if you were, 
brown and had an afro. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really important for white middle class people like myself to talk about these issues and to point out the facts and to continually point these out. Uh, I I certainly do this in my criminal justice classes, uh, both at Wayne State and at Oakland, uh, because I want young people who are in the criminal justice system or will be in the criminal justice system when they graduate to be aware of the potential for bias and discrimination and to understand uh, what they have to do in order, if they're going to be in the criminal justice system, how they need to understand how they need to treat people fairly and how bias can interfere with their own behavior. But I think coming from me probably makes uh, more of an impact than if it came from, say, a black instructor. Uh-huh. So you you went through um, like they called it last year, you know, where where you know you saw a lot of protests in part because of George Floyd um, with the Black Lives Matter. One of the things that in in George Floyd, one of the things that you saw, you saw young people, black, white, brown, standing shoulder to shoulder fighting about this. Does that give you hope for the future? I mean, you've been in this for a minute, and you've been preaching this and teaching this, but as you see those kind of, of things happen, does that give you hope? Yes. And not only did I find hope in who was attending protests and who was protesting, but in the students in my classes, I find that uh, so many of them come in with an understanding of this. Certainly they do if they're a minority, but um, even white middle-class students who are in my classes seem to have a much better understanding of how much racism plays a part. And I'm always heartened by that, that they're, they, will, they are willing to look at the reality of the situation that they're not denying that there's bias and racism, but they're accepting that it is true. Um, And hopefully they go on to make changes in the criminal justice system when they work in it after they graduate. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, you have such a a diverse writing background and the things that you've done. (laughs) But at the same point, you see it, there's an intersectionality. You see how they sort of build on it. Because like I said, you had a book about emotional intelligence. Um, even to the point where you had wrote one book about healing, because, you know, hey, you've got to heal. I mean, from this. So, you, I mean, you've done like so many things. Um, it's interesting, though, that how was this, and we'll talk about that, we're going to take a break, but you've had these other books that come out, and then, I mean, this is really, 
heavier in some ways, although you had one another thing, a book about crime, what happened on this date and crime. I mean, so they're all pretty heavy topics, but this is like really heavy. So um, let's take a break and come back and talk about the release of this book and how it hit. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Back here, collections by Michelle Brown. I'm talking with James Wendell, who, with Kathy Milliken Boyd, published a book, Sentencing Youth to Life in Prison Justice Denied. Okay, it came out officially. Visual launch date was April 8th. Like I said, this is different. You know, I mean, it's a different audience than what you what you normally have. Although I did have one book about crime, but like you talk about um, parenting, you're talking about grief, you talk about historical things. All of it kind of sort of blends in to where I could see where, of course, you would write this book. You know, it pulls in many of the things that you're interested in. But since the eighth, I mean, and I know that people are like, oh, hey, James, what are you about? What was that conversation as you started to tell people about? This new book that you're doing, that you just published, just had published, what was the conversation uh, about who followed you? Well, it's only been a couple of weeks, but I think the the reaction from people in general is that, wow, that sounds very interesting. I really want to read this book and understand more about juvenile life sentences. And I, I think that it comes out at a an important time because with school shootings, with uh-huh. uh, young people still engaged in violent behavior, these are questions that come about almost daily. What do we do with a young person who has committed a violent crime? So I think people are interested in that, um, and I think they ought to know more about uh, what we do with young people who have committed a violent crime. I, I think it's hard for people to think differently other than harsh punishments, and yet harsh punishments have, have not worked very well, never, Although it's always been the theory that if you if you punish someone 
harshly that this is going to be deterrence, either for them committing new crimes or for other people. Uh, but I don't think that there's any evidence that uh, harsh punishments bring about the results that we want. Um, but that's all people tend to think about is let's just increase the punishments and somehow that's going to stop people from using drugs or committing crimes or speeding or whatever. Um, and that doesn't work very well. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying like, you know, they're still talking about Oxford and this young man who did it. And they said every day in Detroit, you know, there are young people who are uh, victims of violence, who are, are going to jail, who are being sentenced. Do you ever, when someone's looking at your book, do you ever find that some people assume you are only talking about black and brown kids and not just that you're talking about kids in general? And although, you know, you're talking about it, a large percentage are black and, and, and brown, but you're not saying it's 100%. So clearly there are young people uh, of all races, all ethnicities, who are being sentenced. So do you ever find that you have to pull them back and say, and tell them that, you know, yeah, you know, these are large statistics, but we're talking about youth overall? Well, I think that's true at times, but I also think that uh, a lot of people are aware that it's not black kids who are going in and shooting people in schools. It's mm -hmm. white kids in suburbia, and this is true across the country. Uh, I don't think this has been lost on people. However, um, I think what they don't necessarily see is that uh, there's a discrepancy in terms of how white kids are handled versus how black uh -huh. kids are handled. And I think with the Oxford school shooting and Ethan Crumbly, who carried out that shooting in Oxford, I think we already see where we're headed with this one, that uh, first of all, you blame the parents, and then you get um, a competency evaluation, and he may plead uh, not guilty by reason of insanity or incompetency of some sort, and if he was black, huh? how would he be treated? Would there even be an evaluation of him? And wouldn't everybody just be saying, give him life? But you don't uh -huh. hear that with Ethan Crumley. You, you see that they're looking at external reasons for why he did this. Um, and I don't think black kids get the same kind of uh, of uh, looking at their, the, the perspective, I think, is different. You know, we had talked earlier about, about the self-fulfilling prophecy because I've heard, you know, people go like, well, you know, if he was black, he'd probably be dead, you know, or, or that, like you said, he wouldn't get that level of sentencing. So it's like also... How are young people do? It's like a trauma that's on the community. Like, 
you have one set of community who's thinking like, oh, this is horrible. You know, our kids would be dead. The other one is like, oh, the parents have failed. He needs help. But there's still a trauma. Those kids in, who are attended Oxford are still traumatized by it. Black kids who are getting killed are still traumatized by what they're seeing. And, you know, what? how we deal with kids moving forward, whether it's in the criminal justice system, that it has to be more than not criminal justice. I mean, for some reason, that, that even just bothers me to say when you talk about youth and you're saying criminal justice, there has to be another word about the kind of justice that needs to be applied to them, not that word criminal. What would you, what word would you use? How would you de- rather have it defined to get back to like the criminal justice courts? You know, how do we get back to a, a term of justice when we're talking about youth? Well, I, I think that, that you're bringing up an interesting point. And it's one that's been made frequently in the past couple of years related to the language we use. Uh, I think we're very used to using words like juvenile delinquent, criminal offender, criminal, murderer, um, other kinds of uh, pejorative terms terms that sort of imply that this is a bad person and a person without hope or the possibility of redemption. And I think that we need to change those words. Uh, You shouldn't even use the word delinquent or juvenile delinquent. Uh Uh That identifies the person. And while I, I I don't know that labeling off always brings about self-fulfilling prophecies, I do think that it matters in the criminal justice system when you begin seeing the person as their offense. If you see him as a boy who was involved in uh, a bad offense is one thing versus he's a murderer, or he is a violent youth. If we define them that way, then we deal differently with them, I think. And again, this goes back to the the hope and the promise of the juvenile court. And originally, is that we were going to see juveniles as people and treat them as individuals and give them an individualized treatment plan and not just send them off to an adult court. So in an adult court, you are a violent offender, you're a criminal, you're a felon, you're a murderer, and everybody who carries those labels gets a certain sentence. In the juvenile court, it should be different, that you are a person you may have made a mistake. You're going to be looked at as a total person. We're going to make a decision as to what happens to you based on who you are and what potential you have. Um, and I think we've gotten away from that, and we need to get back to that. How did your work that you've done, like you've been 
uh, a court clinical psychologist, you've been a parent trainer, a therapist. How did your work influence your thinking as you went into this book and as you were going through and finding out all this stuff and discovering it and you and Kathy, um, you were writing this book together, the conversations that you had, how did it change you? You know, I know you probably thought that you were right there with it before you started, but how did Mm -hmm. this book change you? I, I I think it uh, reinforced a lot of my prior beliefs and thinking. But one of the things we haven't really talked about today uh, is the other side of it, and that is uh, the prosecutors and the victims of juvenile crimes. And we decided, Kathy and I decided as we were doing this book that we had to bring in the voices of the other side. And uh-huh. it shouldn't be minimized that there are people who suffer at the hands of a, a young person who has committed a violent act. Uh-huh. Um, I think I, think I, I had a, a better appreciation. I have a better appreciation for the pain and the suffering that victims experience. And and I don't think that ought to be forgotten. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's important to balance the two. Uh, you have to protect society. You have to try to protect people from being victimized. At the same time, you have to treat juveniles as juveniles and treat them fairly and equitably so I, I think there's just a reinforced thinking on my part that the justice system isn't an easy system, and it's not easy to to treat people in fair ways, but it's something we need to strive for. You know, when we were talking before, I was telling you about um, how in South Africa where they had the truth and reconciliation hearings, and where... <laughs> There were some people who had done atrocities against their community and and hurt some mothers and families. But there was, I recall seeing this, this film, it was wrong, A Long Night's Journey into Dark Ghana. Anyhow, there was a mother who sat there and she wanted to, you know, she wanted to tell this young guy what she, the impact that he had had on her family, on the community. But then at the end, I mean, and he was sobbing, she was sobbing, but at the end she was able to forgive him. You know, how important it is is it for these families who have seen this, who have been victims of a young person who was who did something horrible. Are they, I mean, how important is it for them? How do they feel? Do they recognize that this is a young person? Has it been like, oh, you know, put them in jail, throw away the key, forget about them? Is there any recon- any place for reconciliation? Well, I think there is definitely a place for reconciliation, and we emphasize this in the later chapters of our book, that we believe in restorative justice. 
Uh-huh. And restorative justice basically means bringing offenders and victims together to get to know each other. And often this leads to a different kind of understanding and, and often to forgiveness. I do believe that, you, you know, we know how victims feel. And in the beginning, they are very angry that they've been victimized or they lost somebody due to the violence of of another person. We understand that. Um, But if they go on being angry, then it robs them of so much in their life. And uh, you would hope that people get over this anger in time. And we have stories in the book about people who were able to forgive a a young person who committed a violent act and and caused pain and suffering. Uh, And there are some very poignant stories in our book about the forgiveness that can come about. And this changes both the person who did the offense and the person who was initially so angry at suffering a loss. Um, It's very important that people learn to give up their anger and to forgive because I think forgiving may do a lot for the person who committed the offense, but it does more for the individual who is forgiving. You know, you said that there were cases where someone came out and and what they, they had turned their life around and how they gave back to their community. Can you talk about what, what one of the cases that really, impressed you where someone said, you know, put them in jail, throw away the key, but here's a, how they not, they redeemed themselves and gave back. What was, what, is there a story that you can talk about that really touched you the most? Um, I, I think John Pace from Philadelphia was one who we spent a lot of time talking to, um, like so many black kids in Philadelphia, he he grew up in a poor family with a a mother who was struggling to bring up several children, and he was thus on his own a great deal without the influence of a father. And he got involved in in juvenile crime, and he ends up killing somebody. Uh, but after several years in prison, I think he actually spent. Uh, 25 years in prison, uh, he was a far different person when he was released. And uh, he's such a well-spoken person right now. He he uh, got an education. When he got out, he developed a re-entry program for other um, juvenile offenders. Uh, and he worked very hard at helping other people re-enter society and to heal. Um, but we, we came in contact with other people. And since our book was published, we heard from a man in Michigan, Edward Sanders, who was released in 2017 after spending 30-some years in prison. And 
since then he's gotten his uh, bachelor's degree and he too is working in programs to help other people. He is uh, dealing with many former juvenile lifers in Michigan. Um, you know, these, these are remarkable people who have really changed their life and their contributing members of society. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. When you went and talked to people, you know, I mean, I think that I, how welcoming were they to talk to you for the book? And was it bitterness? Um no, we didn't find much bitterness at all. Um, even in some of the people we talked to who are still juvenile lifers in prison, um, we could talk to them by phone or email. Um, we, di- we didn't come across anyone who was bitter. Um, as to people wanting to talk to us, for the most part, everybody we approached was willing to talk to us. There were a couple of uh, former juvenile lifers who wanted to write their own books and didn't want to um, let us interview them because I guess they felt like uh, that would spoil their own efforts at writing a book. Uh, but we could understand that. I, I think the people who were most reluctant to talk to us were prosecutors and attorney generals. Mm. Um, we talked to victims. Uh, um, sometimes they they were not always willing to talk because it uh, would bring back some of the the hurt and suffering that they experienced. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, uh, so, okay, books out. I, I think it's great that people have reached, you know, have come to you and reached out to you and talked about it. Next step, um, are you looking at, I think it would be great to have, like, discussions about what's happening and, you know, where do we go from here? Are you looking at having discussions? Do you see some type of a follow-up? to it. I mean, like, you've, you've experienced so many things, and I think that I could see that you talking about what it means on, on the community for the people who come back, talking about the film. Do you see any other projects coming as a result of this work? Yeah, uh, I, I think definitely so. Um, I think we're going to be involved in projects where we probably work with more people who have been released. Um, I think uh, we probably will continue to interview some of the people. Um, I think that could mean not only uh, speeches and community discussions and um, conferences, but I think it could also mean another book or a film or something like that. I I just think there's a lot of work still to be done and a lot of stories that need to be told. So we haven't made any decisions yet, except uh, we're going to be 
continue to talk about our book to as many people who want to listen and uh, see what develops. But I I think uh, there will be a lot of follow-up. I I think there will be other projects that come along uh, that will just continue what we've started here. You know, is there a message when when someone does that, you know, and they and they they find out that they're going to? I mean, you see these re- wonderful reunions sometimes with a family, and like they've been waiting forever, and the young person comes out half of their life now they're they're adults. I mean, you know, I mean, but do they? Is that is that something that crosses uh, someone's mind? It's like, can I go home again? Will I be welcome? Do you think that in having conversations, talking about the system, talking about what changes, that that will help them ease back into the community to recognize that story, them going through that, hopefully will break the system? Yeah, I I really do hope that that happens, and I I think it does. Um, I, I think every person who's gotten released probably has uh, come out of prison with some trepidation. They may have support from some family members, but beyond that, they're probably not sure how the community is going to accept them. And I think overall, the media has been fairly positive in telling the stories of, of people who have been released after being sentenced to life without parole. Um, but I hope that we can be part of that, where we can be involved in some kind of reentry programs and get more people involved in, in helping people who spent time in prison to come out and uh, live a, a life that uh, allows them to have social support and uh, that they can find a way to make a living and make a contribution. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know, and I mean, there's all different kinds of ways. I mean, like you say, I have met people who have come out, took the time, got educated, learned about something, learned a skill. Even I know someone who's going to do a um, food truck because they learned culinary Mm -hmm. skills while they were in there. And so it was like, you know, there was a period of time where he was like, he thought, well, anybody ever hire me? But it was like, you know what? I can make my own living, and I can tell people what I did, and like it's not over, you know that that you can be, you can come back, you can both, you you can come out stronger. You might have gone in a youth and and gone through a lot, but you can come out stronger. James, um, I think it's in a very important book. Um, I am hoping as you you go along and that we can, can continue this discussion. I think it's a really important discussion to continue to have. Yes, I agree with you, and I hope we can continue the discussion. I think there's a lot more to say. I want to thank my guest, James Wendell, the author of Sentencing Youth to Life in Prison, Justice Denied. By looking in depth at the lives of some of the individuals serving life terms, and understanding both the prosecutors who oppose review and resentencings of juvenile lifers, 
and those who are sincerely following the Supreme Court's guidelines, this book provides a comprehensive understanding of the issues. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.